Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So we need a certain set of nutrients to make sure that we're ovulating, to make sure that every ovum that we release is as healthy as possible, to ensure a healthy uterine lining, to have healthy cervical mucus, that mucus is helping channel healthy sperm into the uterus and up toward the fallopian tube where it meets the ovum, but also that healthy cervical mucus blocks unhealthy sperm. I mean, talk about hormone intelligence. Our bodies do these incredible things. They're happening all the time we don't even know about it and the level of detail of what our bodies are doing to help us get pregnant with healthy babies is really incredible and the foundation for all of that is our nutrition our nutrition that's dr aviva rom and this is the plant proof podcast beautiful friends. Welcome back to another episode. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you. I hope that you've been keeping well. For new listeners, I'm Simon Hill, host of this show, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Please do sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Dr. Aviva Rom, welcome. Great to be here with you today. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on your new book, Hormone Intelligence. It's amazing. You've done an incredible job. Before we dig into things, I'm interested in how it feels for you now to have all of your knowledge, all of that wisdom packaged up in a way that is super accessible for people to make use of. Well, first of all, thank you for saying that. And oh my gosh, I wish I could get all of my knowledge into one place. The book was twice the size. My publisher made me whittle it down to half because they said, um, we can't publish a doorstop, Aviva. <laughs> so um, it feels like the tip of the iceberg, but I feel like it's, I hope it's a really good tip of the iceberg that really allows women to start to understand what's going on and their root causes. And then of course, as you know, as an author too, we create what we can in books and then we create more in our home bases, our online platforms for women to go deeper and deeper. But it feels amazing. You know, I just feel so grateful to have the opportunity to communicate in written form, which I love, and to share what's been really important to me as a woman, but also transformative for my patients and clients over the past three and a half decades. You touch on many incredibly important health issues in your book, PCOS, adrenal and thyroid health, uh, endometriosis, fertility, period pain, just to name a, a few. And today, I really want to zoom in on this episode into fertility. Before we do that, why don't we break down the title of your new book, Hormone Intelligence, and really what your philosophy is and and perhaps what sets you apart in this space from others? Well, I think what sets me apart is a few things. One is that I have almost 40 years now of combined experience 
not just as an MD, but actually as an MD who also practiced as a home birth midwife for 20 plus years before becoming an MD and as a clinical herbalist. So a lot of people who write books, you know, they have wonderful intentions and a lot of phenomenal ideas, but don't always have the actual clinical experience. I've worked with tens of thousands of women in so many different settings, and I know the alternative, if you will, or the out-of-the-box and the medical. And I hold both in equal value, but also know when we need what. And I hear from so many women, you know, as I was writing the book, part of what my publisher said, it's so long and so much. It's like you work with women all the time. So you already know what their next question is going to be. And you're, you know, you answer that. So I think that's part of what sets me apart, if you will. There's there's so many wonderful people in the women's wellness space. What the title means to me is two things. My grandmother was a librarian and I was a spelling bee kind of geeky kid. So I think of it in terms of a noun and a verb. Hormone intelligence, the noun, is this deep innate blueprint that we have had as women from time immemorial and that guides our hormones throughout our life cycles, throughout day-to-day and throughout the big changes in our lives, puberty, fertility, menopause, etc. The verb is the knowledge, the intelligence, the wisdom to live along with that blueprint or to reestablish the health of that blueprint, which is so commonly disrupted by modern living, whether it's disruption in our circadian rhythm because we're on social media till midnight, whether it's stress because we're on social media till midnight, or maybe we're on it because we're stressed and we're looking for some recreation, but doesn't necessarily make us feel better. You know, the 20 rounds of antibiotics that most women have had by the time they're 20, you know, there's so much overuse of antibiotics that disrupt our microbiome, the environmental endocrine disruptors that are affecting our hormones. So it's learning what those root causes are. That's the intelligence to reestablish that innate blueprint. So these hormones that often get blamed for problems, I know that you like to think of them more as signals that you can then use to better understand what's going on. Yeah. So, you know, usually when women have a hormonal imbalance, whether it's period pain or fertility challenge or endometriosis, whatever it is, and especially women who are trying to be educated about their wellness and their health, one of the first things we ask ourselves is, what am I doing wrong that this is happening or what's wrong with me? And then so often when we do go to the doctor, we're either told, oh, that's just normal for being a woman. You're naturally hormonal, if you will. Or those symptoms, the the pain, the discomfort, the digestive problems, the fertility problems, what have you, it's just normal for being a woman. Or one of the things a lot of women are told, for example, with PCOS or weight gain with thyroid problems or stress and exhaustion with adrenal problems is if we just exercise more, if we just slept better, if we just ate better, somehow that would magically fix it as if there's something we're doing wrong or something innately wrong with us. And so one of the big pieces of this book is starting with the premise that it's not our fault. It doesn't mean we can't take responsibility and improve our health, but there's nothing wrong with you. You're not broken. And again, the reason that women are having these hormonal imbalances, if you will, that also show up as diagnosable conditions, like you mentioned, endometriosis, PCOS, infertility, are because of these disruptions that are happening externally based on the culture that we live in and the things that we 
have just come to expect as par for the course, you know, working 24-7 or eating sugary diets or living on coffee or whatever it is. So I really want to help women understand that no matter what's going on, it's not your fault. You're not a lemon. You're not broken. One of those, I guess, major areas in your book that you speak to being fertility, and this is you know, often an area where, where women can start to blame themselves and lose hope and lose confidence. And so it's a topic that I haven't covered in detail yet on, on the show, but I know a very important one. And I think there's a lot of confusing information out there. So I'm really grateful to have someone with your experience and expertise, uh, both in the clinic, but also through your studies to zoom in on it and, and sort of make sense of things as best as we can. Yeah, I'm so glad for that. I, you know, I just want to say that this is one area that women, it's so sort of expected that women are going to turn into mothers. And many women want to, probably most women want to. And when we don't, not only is there the self-blame, but there can be this huge sense of failure. And these days, fertility is not just a medical diagnosis or infertility. It's a multi-billion dollar business. It's one of the fastest growing industries, at least in the in the US. It's one of the fastest growing industries, not just medical industries, predicted to be a double-digit billion, you know, into the $30 billion a year industry. So there's a lot of premature diagnosing of fertility problems, a lot of funneling women really quickly down the reproductive assisted medical train. So yes, there are the fertility challenges, but then what also is really going on and how many of those women really need that versus good support around diet, lifestyle, and also just some patience. Yeah, so maybe we just dig into that, I guess, before we we go into the recommendations. Can we kind of define or separate what is considered a normal amount of time to fall pregnant versus what is normal? And then essentially, what is the definition of infertility? Yeah. So infertility as a diagnosis and a definition depends on age. So under 35, it's not getting pregnant within one year of actively trying during times of the cycle when you can get pregnant. And for women over 35, it's six months or after six months, it's a diagnosis. Unfortunately, many physicians don't wait that long. Many women feel, of course, naturally concerned and impatient to become pregnant, afraid of the diagnosis, maybe pending. And statistically, most women, like 90% of women who try for one year will get pregnant within that one year. And most of those women who didn't get pregnant within one year will get pregnant within two years. But it's hard. I mean, sometimes if you're 39 and 40 and you're first trying, you might not feel like you have the luxury of one or two years. And so there can be that pressure. And again, back to this medical pressure, even women under 35 are often told that they have a fertility challenge long before they're medically diagnosable. I'm thinking of one friend of mine who she's now 34 and has an almost two-year-old, but when she was 31 was told by her OB after about seven or eight months of trying and she hadn't gotten pregnant that her eggs were like 
fried eggs on a hot summer sidewalk and she may as well just go down the fertility road because she was never going to get pregnant. She was actually told this and talk about mind, body, medicine and psyching someone out. So now she had that anxiety and stress on top of it. But ultimately within a few months of being told that, fortunately did get pregnant the old fashioned way and had a healthy pregnancy and birth. But this is happening all the time. So I guess in general, there seems to be the idea that infertility is increasing within our population. Would you agree with that? Or is this largely a result of this industry that you're talking about and perhaps overdiagnosis? Or is there some real issues? Yeah, it's really both. So when you look at some statistical analyses, there are people who will say that really over the last 20 years, the rates of infertility across the board haven't actually increased that much. What's really increased is the rate of women who are going in for fertility assessment and treatment. But we do know over the last decade that the rates of male infertility or what I prefer to call subfertility for example, have increased, as has the um, time to conception. So the amount of time it takes from when a woman starts to try to get pregnant to when she does. So to clarify a few things, fertility challenges are equally split between men and women. It's 50-50 between the female and the male partner. Historically, it's been blamed on women, and that's not actually the case. And then I really prefer the term subfertility. So we really have two kind of terms that are happening out there. One is infertility, which just refers to that, you know, challenge in getting pregnant within a certain amount of time that I discussed earlier. And sterility, which is the inability to get pregnant. So let's say somebody's had... Uh, their ovaries removed, or a male or female has had cancer and radiation that has ablated, you know, the functioning of their gonads. Their testes don't work; they can't produce sperm. Their ovaries don't work, or they don't have them; they can't produce eggs. That is sterility. You cannot get pregnant. Infertility is what I described in terms of you know the under thirty-five, over thirty-five, one year, six months, etc. But infertility to me also sounds. I think in our mind, we equate that with sterility. Like I can't get pregnant. Infertility, it sounds concrete. It sounds kind of permanent and it sounds almost like a futility in it. Subfertility is a term that I prefer and it's a technically recognizable term, but it means that your fertility isn't necessarily kind of happening as fast. It's not optimized. And that to me, it's like, okay, I might not be optimally fertile yet right now, but I can get there. I'm just a little below the surface, but there are things I can do to get there. And that's the case for most people trying to get pregnant, is that subfertility state. That's a lot more optimistic. What percentage of people who are diagnosed today with infertility can resolve the issues and go on to have a healthy pregnancy? At least 90% at least 90%. And most of those can get pregnant spontaneously. In fact, there's some really interesting studies that look at people who used assisted technologies to get pregnant with their first pregnancy, whether that was using medications to induce ovulation or using IVF or embryo transfer, anything like that. And then with their second pregnancies, just getting pregnant spontaneously. They just waited. And it's not like the first pregnancy somehow cracked the code and now the body's working again. It's just that they needed more time and waiting that time between the first and second pregnancy, 
they often don't need to repeat that fertility treatment. And look, I'm not uh, opposed to fertility treatment either. We know that there are hormonal factors, environmental endocrine factors, nutritional factors, all kinds of things that can lead to significant fertility challenges. And if somebody doesn't want to wait or they really are doing everything they can and they still haven't gotten pregnant, then using those techniques is great. What I would say is that if somebody's had a challenge getting pregnant, fertility on a biological basis is reflective of nature's kind of testimony that that person's genetics, health, et cetera, is viable and optimized. And so that reproduction should happen. So when somebody is having trouble getting pregnant, it's not that that person isn't optimal or doesn't have good DNA and shouldn't have children. It's that we also need to just say, all right, let's not just force this with a medication. Let's still do all of the things that address the root causes. Because if somebody has nutritional challenges that are keeping them from getting pregnant, if they have polycystic ovary syndrome with insulin resistance, and then they do get pregnant with fertility treatments. If they have endocrine dysfunction because of environmental endocrine disruptors that we're now overriding with fertility treatment, all those underlying things are still there and they can still get in the way of a healthy, optimal pregnancy, healthy, optimal baby. So it's still important to do all of these root cause things that I know we're going to talk about And interestingly, some of the strongest data that we have for some of the tools that I know we're going to talk about actually comes from showing how well they actually improve reproductive, uh, assisted reproductive techniques. So they're important across the board. And for me, that's the biggest thing I always do. When somebody comes to me with a fertility challenge, no matter how old somebody is or how young they are, I say, let's give this ideally one year. If you can't hang in there with me for one year because you're just you know, feeling like, I got to get pregnant now, at least six months to do all the optimization. And oftentimes it's in that window that people do actually get pregnant. One, it's this, the old story of when you stop trying to do it, it happens. And two, you're allowing the body to be nourished to the level that then those reproductive capacities get optimized and the body can have an easier time doing it for itself. And then if you do need to go into those assisted treatments, then you're also optimized for those, which is a beautiful thing. I'm interested because you you mentioned the sort of equal contribution from male infertility or subfertility. Before we get into some of these strategies for optimizing fertility and we look at nutritional challenges and recommendations, I guess I know your focus is on on women, but Broadly speaking, are, are many of these recommendations also the same ones that you would be recommending for men? A hundred percent. So one of the areas that I do diverge from working with just women and children is when I have a, a fertility couple that I'm working with and I always will say, let's optimize the partner as well. And, you know, even if I'm not working with the male for his fertility challenge, if he has subfertility, I have a colleague that I will usually refer. He's a naturopath acupuncturist who focuses on man, men's reproductive and urinary health. So I'll send the male partner to that colleague and work with my female partner. But I always say we have to optimize both to really optimize the health. And it's 50-50 contribution there. And yes, everything is applicable. Mm-hmm. So don't tune out if you're, if you're a man and you're listening continue on here. There's another reason not to tune out, if you don't mind my saying, Simon, is that 
When couples are on the quest to make a baby and there is a challenge in that process, the longer that challenge takes, often the more challenging the relationship becomes. There can be a lot of blame and tension in the relationship. And sex can become more fraught. One, sex can become mechanical. If you're only trying to have sex at a certain time of month to to make a baby, it becomes different than passion and all the juicy stuff that can really, I think, help fertility. But also there can be a really incredible amount of grief for the female partner as she tries to get pregnant. You know, I've had women who were trying for a while to get pregnant, even if it was just a few months. And every period is so disappointing. It's so grief stricken with that disappointment of not having conceived again. And the longer that goes on, it gets harder. So I think it's really important for both if there is a couple, whether it's female, female, and you're going through assisted together with with a sperm donor, however you're doing it, or male, female, that understanding and partnership in this is so beautiful and important in that baby making. That's a really important point. You talk about diet being the foundation of your treatment in your medical clinic. Why why is that? Well, our diet is the building block of our hormones. It's the building block of our reproductive optimization. It's the building block of our cellular health. It's what prevents inflammation and oxidative stress. Those are two big words that mean that your cells are getting damaged from a variety of environmental exposures, nutritional deficiencies, food exposures. So it really is the root of optimizing our fertility. So we need a certain set of nutrients to make sure that we're ovulating, to make sure that every ovum that we release is as healthy as possible, to ensure a healthy uterine lining, the endometrium, to have healthy cervical mucus so that when we do um, have sex during our fertile window, that mucus is helping to channel healthy sperm into the uterus and up toward the fallopian tube where it meets the ovum, but also that healthy cervical mucus blocks unhealthy sperm. I mean, talk about hormone intelligence. Our bodies do these incredible things. They're happening all the time. We don't even know about it. And the level of detail of what our bodies are doing to help us get pregnant with healthy babies is really incredible. And the foundation for all of that is our nutrition. So many women who even who get pregnant easily go into pregnancy either insufficient or actually deficient in a long list of about 14 nutrients. We're talking about folate, iron, vitamin D, zinc, selenium, choline, The list goes on and on and on and on. Essential fatty acids, choline and essential fatty acids are essential for baby's brain health. Selenium is essential for mom's healthy thyroid function, but also for baby's healthy thyroid function. Iron is essential for mom having healthy blood volume, preventing her from bleeding too much at birth, but also iron carries oxygen from mom's cells through the placenta, through the umbilical cord, that's the oxygen that's literally feeding the baby's brain and baby's cellular growth. So on and on, these nutrients are so important. And not to say in any way that a fertility challenge is a gift. 
it's not. It's an incredible stress. But at the same time, like any health challenge, it, it is an opportunity to optimize your health and optimize baby's health. 50% of people get pregnant unintended. So half of women are going into pregnancy without planning it. And the number of women that go in missing these nutrients is really significant. So you can actually look at this as an opportunity to step back and say, okay, I'm going to make sure I'm onboarding all these nutrients. I'm going to make sure that I'm eating the essential fatty acids, the wide variety of fruits and vegetables that provide me with all this color. And those colors are what are cooling inflammation, preventing things like gestational diabetes and preeclampsia and high blood pressure and preterm labor. So it all starts with how we get pregnant. So let's walk through this, I guess, from a a food point of view. In order to avoid these nutrient deficiencies from a food perspective first, because I know we'll, we'll get into some prenatal supplements and all that sort of fun stuff too, what does an optimal dietary pattern look like? So for me, I lean into what is often known as a Mediterranean style diet. In my book, of course, I call it the hormone intelligence plan because I've modified it specifically for women's different needs across different conditions and life cycles. But a Mediterranean style diet is foundationally plant-based. It uses a lot of greens, a wide variety of, I call it eating at a rainbow. I'm sure you probably do too, but eating a rainbow, wide variety of colors of fruits and vegetables because it's those purple blues, you know, that plum color, those blackberry colors, those blueberry colors, the red and strawberries and peppers, the yellow and melons and apricots and squashes, winter squashes, that orange that are telling us we're getting those nutrients. Those, those colors are related to nutrients and what are called phytochemicals. Phytochemicals are what protect us against inflammation and cellular damage and optimize our cellular function. So it starts with about eight to 10 servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Now, I know when people hear that, they're like, oh my gosh, I could never eat that many fruits and vegetables. But if you have a couple of eggs with your breakfast, I'm going to get back to the importance of eggs, particularly for fertility. When you have a couple of eggs and maybe a piece of your favorite sourdough or gluten-free toast, or maybe some nice you know, roasted potatoes for the deliciousness and for all those good resistant starches, have a serving of sauteed spinach on the side or a small bed of arugula. And right there, you're getting one serving. You can add a green smoothie or a green drink to your breakfast and you can pack in another four servings if you add, you know, a lemon and an apple and a couple of carrots and maybe some Swiss chard or spinach to that or just do the veggies with, you know, the other things without the greens if you've sauteed the greens. Then have a big salad for lunch. It doesn't have to be like, you know, some giant bowl full, but a nice salad bowl full of a couple of cups of veggies that gives you another four servings. Then you can have like some broccoli or something for dinner, broccoli and squash. You've really gotten eight to 10 servings pretty easily. So that's the foundation. And to that, we want to add some eggs and fish. Now you can be vegan and I was vegetarian and or vegan for three of my four pregnancies. So I know you can do it really well. I've done it really well. But I will say it's easier to feel sated 
And it's a lot easier to meet your protein needs. And it's a lot easier to meet your essential fatty acid and choline needs if you're getting eggs and fish in your diet. So fish needs to be good quality fatty fish that's low mercury. So sardines and salmon are my two big go-tos for that because you can get low mercury and they're going to provide just a whopping ton of EPA and DHA. So three servings of good fatty fish a week. It doesn't have to be a giant serving. It can be like a four ounce serving of salmon or a couple of sardines three, four times a week. And then it's not too much to actually eat two eggs every day if you tolerate them. Two eggs every day give you a huge foundational basis, one of really easy to go to protein and also the choline that you're going to need when you do get pregnant. So you kind of seamlessly transition from this fertility diet, I call it an optimal fertility diet on my website in my article and podcast about that, to a prenatal diet. And then that carries you through postpartum. The other things in this way of eating are nuts and seeds, legumes. I love to lean into chickpeas and lentils, for example. And then healthy fats are really important. So olive oil and avocados are my two biggest go-to. And then of course you get healthy fats in the fish and the nuts and seeds. And that's kind of the the be-all and end-all of it. You can eat a little poultry if you like poultry, but I recommend not more than one to two times a week. Studies that have looked, large studies, we're talking, you know, tens of thousands of women who eat more poultry that may cause some inflammation that may impact fertility. Similarly, eating red meat more than one time a week may actually affect fertility. I love to add flax seeds to the diet because they're wonderful for fertility and and ovulation. And then dairy is kind of a funny one. Studies that have looked at dairy and fertility Early on, like 10, 15 years ago, there was a big study done at Harvard called the Women's Health Study. It's been an ongoing huge study with like 70,000 women. But Jorge Chavarro and Walter Willett, two you know, incredibly prolific nutrition writers, did this study. And they found at that time and reported that women who ate full-fat dairy had higher fertility than women who ate non-fat dairy. And so it became sort of the thing to recommend that women eat full-fat dairy. The problem is a couple of things. One is unless you're getting organic dairy, you're getting growth hormone, antibiotics, environmental contaminants, hormones that you don't want in your dairy. So I really encourage if you're going to eat dairy, it has to be organic. But second of all, even if it is organic dairy, you know, perfectly raised animals, they're still going to have some additional hormones in that milk. They're still going to pick up some environmental contaminants. And also about 50% of people do experience inflammation when they eat dairy. And inflammation is sort of a no-go for fertility. So when Shavaro and Willett went back and reanalyzed the data, it was really interesting. And this happened just in the last few years. The reason they thought that the full-fat dairy was better than the non-fat dairy is that the non-fat dairy is more sugar. When you take out the fat, you're left with more water and lactose. So overall, full-fat dairy is healthier than non-fat dairy in general for kids, for adults, et cetera. But what they found is that it wasn't really the dairy that was beneficial for fertility. It was two things, getting enough calcium in the diet and getting enough fat in the diet. 
And you can do that on a completely vegan diet with getting all the leafy greens that we talked about, the legumes that we talked about. I like adding in tahini because tahini is an amazing source of calcium. You can totally do it. So I tend to encourage people to skip the dairy and lean into the vegan sources, the plant-based sources of calcium and fat, and then the fish. But if you do love dairy and you want to include it in your diet, keep it to just a few times a week as a condiment and complement, and make sure it's organic and full fat. (laughs) Okay, great. That was super clear. Now, I want to come back to to fish and eggs. I think there will be uh, a lot of people listening that are sort of plant-forward, plant-rich diets. And then you know, you mentioned vegans and there will be some vegan listeners. And I, I, I want to just dig into, well, if someone's not eating fish and not eating eggs, what should they do to optimize for DHA, EPA, choline, et cetera. But before we, we jump into that, and I'm interested in your thoughts on there seems to be a little bit of confusion out there or various, I guess, opinions with regards to saturated fat and fertility I see some people who come from a more sort of paleo ancestral way of eating are recommending people really double down on saturated fat and double down on uh, red meat and butter, et cetera, for fertility. And I'm wondering what you think about that and whether there is science to support that sort of uh, way of eating for conception and pregnancy. Yeah. So a few thoughts on that. I spent six years on a scientific advisory board with a gentleman named Boyd Eaton. Boyd is a physician who 26, 27 years ago wrote the Paleolithic diet paper that so many people have based the paleo diet on. And then he did a recent paper uh, two years ago. It was the 25th anniversary of the paleo diet. And Boyd was on the scientific advisory committee with me, so we had ample time to discuss this, and he also gave us presentations about it. And Boyd's perspective is that, first of all, traditionally, when you actually look at the paleo diet, people still got 80% of their energy from plant sources, not animal sources. And that the way that the paleo diet has been commercialized, which he's never made a penny off of the paleo, he doesn't promote it that way, he's an academic, is not one, what they were talking about, or two, what the history shows. It's just a commercialized, meat-based, saturated fat-based diet that is not a traditional paleo diet. Second of all, and I think really importantly, even if that were a traditional diet, which it wasn't, a few things. One is that the animals that we're consuming now are not consuming the same type of grass that animals were consuming even 200 years ago. So the grass that animals free-ranged on, let's say 200 years ago, was full of omega-3s. And the grass now is not. So the actual composition of that dairy, of that butter, of that meat, it's much more inflammatory than the meat that our ancestors would have eaten. And certainly than the wild game that our paleo ancestors were eating. Because paleo means they weren't farm, they weren't animal husbandrying yet, right? They were still hunter-gatherer. And to me, perhaps the most important thing is that regardless of whether that was a traditional diet or not, and again, I'm going to emphasize that it wasn't, our planet cannot sustain ecologically, and Boyd is very clear about this, that the carbon footprint 
of people eating that much meat and that much saturated fat from an agricultural or ecological perspective is completely unsustainable from everything from, you know, carbon emission to landmass use. So even if that were a traditional diet, given the planetary crisis we're, we're facing, not to be a Debbie Downer here, but we would have to change that anyway. So on every level, not really what people ate traditionally, not the same meat, even if people did eat that traditionally and not sustainable. What I will say is that for the most part, with exceptions for religious choices, every culture around the world does eat some animal products in their diet. So whether it's the Hadza people who are getting parts of bees, bodies in with the wild honey that they're eating or um, traditional people living closer to nature, indigenously, if you will. Every culture has included some eggs, some wild-caught fish, some wild-caught game. I personally became a vegetarian and a vegan when I was 15 for ecological and spiritual reasons. And like I said, I spent three pregnancies and went into a fourth pregnancy and breastfed for 11 years as a, a vegetarian or a vegan for those reasons. With my fourth pregnancy, I just started really craving meat. And I just felt like I couldn't eat enough volume to make up for what my body was asking for. And I really tried to eat intuitively and listen to my body and trust my body. So it was hilarious. I had to call my mother-in-law up to figure out how to cook a chicken. I was completely grossed out by it. I had my husband do it. Every time I'd eat it, I was like thanking the animals and I still do that now. But I really did feel like I had a lot more energy and I think I was depleted. So it, it it all depends on like where you're at in your life, what your spiritual and political values are and you know what you're comfortable with. If you are completely just, I can't do it, I can't stomach it, I can't do it spiritually, I can't do it politically, then yes, there are absolutely ways which we can talk about to get all the nutrients that you need. But I really, I take issue with a lot of the paleo movement, the keto movement. I think people often feel better when they first start these things, especially if they're going off of a standard diet and onto something that's more conscientious and they've taken the sugar out and they've taken the excess carbs out. And then, you know, just from a data-driven perspective, the data is completely the opposite. The data shows hands down across the board that women who have a plant-based diet with a small amount of eggs and fish or a completely vegetarian diet actually have healthier hormones, healthier elimination, and better fertility. So I lean into a plant-based diet that has eggs and fish as a complement or condiment to it, if you will. Well, it's good to know that there are, within that theme of plant-based eating, there are a few ways to do it. And like you said, depending on how someone feels ethically, spiritually, they can kind of navigate that and listen to their own body, uh, which I completely agree with. Yeah, Simon, where where are you with it? Where, where are you with all of this? I'm so curious. I mean, are you on the same page? Well, when I look at an optimal diet, I certainly see the Mediterranean diet as one of those options. I think you can do a Mediterranean diet, a pescatarian diet, a vegetarian, or a plant-exclusive diet. 
they all need to be very well planned. And, you know, my message is not to tell someone what to adopt. I, I prefer to let them find the way of eating that leaves them feeling the best. And also, I do think it still is important to factor in how our food affects the environment and the non-human animals that we share this place with. So that's kind of where my message is, uh, which I think is not too dissimilar to yours. No, we're exactly the same. And when I talk about a Mediterranean diet, to me, I see that as adaptable to any of those as almost sort of a base. And then if you don't eat fish, then you increase the legumes. If you don't eat this, that, or the other, you just modify around. Yeah. I think the, the really, the important thing is knowing that if you're going to remove something, what you replace it with is critical. It's just as important to think about the addition as it is the subtraction. While we're talking about animal foods here, and it may seem odd that I'm dialing in on animal foods here on this show, but I think it's important because there is a lot of information out there and different ideas being shared. And something that I've come across from certain groups is this idea about organ meats being really good for fertility. And I, I wonder what you think about that. Yeah. So traditionally, I mean, people ate everything. My grandmother, I come from a, a Jewish Eastern European family and I can remember going in my grandmother's kitchen and the giant cow tongue on the cutting board, you know, and the livers being cooked up. People ate everything. And certainly um, traditionally for women who were iron deficient, liver was a big part of the diet. I would say unless you are raising those animals yourself or your neighbors raising those animals and they're really coming from a really pristine environment, organ meat, especially the liver, accumulates so much of what the environmental toxin byproducts are. That's how our bodies clean those things up. And it's the same for animals. So I tend to lean away from organ meats um, for pregnant women personally or fertility, um, just in general. I'm not a big organ meat fan. I'm the same with bone broth. I mean, I, I, you probably didn't expect that I was this opinionated, but you know, I've been around the block. I've been in this work for almost 40 years now. And you know, similarly with bone broth, if you're going to boil up bones, great. There's, you know, so many rich nutrients that can come out, but we also have to be mindful that our bones are a repository for environmental heavy metals. So knowing what your sources are, but there's no evidence, if you will, there's no historical or scientific evidence that organ meats improve fertility. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, the Proof is in the Plants is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. Plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. What about the ultra-processed foods? I think, you know, in, in the United States... The average person's diet consists of around 60% of calories from ultra-processed foods. Canada and UK, it's similar in Australia, relatively similar. How do these foods affect fertility? Yeah. So first of all, I will say that I don't even call them ultra-processed foods anymore because they're not foods. I call them non-food junk and um, because they're just not even foods. And I think once we realized that, and we think about food as information for our cells and our fertility, and we go, that's not food. Why would I eat that? Kind of right there almost is the answer. That said, though, when you actually look at the literature around highly processed foods and fertility, 
it's an absolute no-go. So we know, for example, that women, and I'm sure this would be true for men if it were studied, it hasn't really been studied to my knowledge, but women who eat ultra-processed and highly processed foods do have a longer time to fertility. Interestingly, even women who just eat out, dine out several times a week, have lower fertility than women who prepare more of their own foods, which is fascinating when you think about, you know, the excess sodium and the processed foods. What we do know is that what's really happening is two things. One, they're increasing inflammation and inflammation in and of itself affects fertility, embryo health. It affects the health of the endometrium, the uterine lining. So it affects implantation. And also so many of these highly processed foods are high in sugar, which creates insulin resistance, which also creates inflammation and affects fertility. Another thing that happens is when we're eating these ultra-processed foods and highly sugar-laden foods, not only are they not adding nutrients to our body, but because our body has to fight that inflammation, our body is actually expending nutrients to mop up the damage that those foods are causing. So they actually act as nutrient depleters. I'm not a restrictor when it comes to my own diet, when it comes to my patients, you know, people I teach, I'm not a restrictor. But really understanding that when we take these things out, we're not taking out food. And the problem with these things is they're often so highly flavored, whether it's MSG or salt, you know, sodium, a variety of sugars. These things are literally scientifically engineered for the exact sweet spot, the exact salt spot to make us addicted to them. And they change our palate. So they make everything else less flavorful. So one of the, the, the first thing I do with diet is always just to take all of those out of the diet and replace them with real whole foods, natural foods, if you will, that are nutrient rich that are every bit as delicious and just encourage people to learn, one, to use herbs and seasonings, things that make them taste really good, but also to give it a minute, you know, give it a week or two for your palate to adjust. The jury's out until your palate's had a chance to adjust from those highly processed flavors that are chemically engineered to set off all our dopamine receptors and make us want more. Yeah, the food scientists do a great job hijacking the taste buds, don't they? It must be frustrating. I mean, you must feel a little disappointed when you sort of navigate the current food environment then and you see how widely available these ultra-processed, hyper-palatable foods are because it's one thing for someone coming to see you who has the means to go and then change their diet, but you know, a large percentage of the decisions that people are making boils down to the fact that that's their food environment and those are the convenient, affordable and tasty options for them. Exactly. I mean, it, it is really frustrating. First of all, it starts really young, at least in the US and I would imagine in the other nations that you've mentioned, sugary cereals are put at eye level for toddlers. So, you know, we're starting this addiction 
really early. And um, even though now I work in a private, more exclusive, if you will, um, clinical practice, I try to make all of this information really affordably available through my online articles, my books, and online courses. But one-to-one is definitely more, you know, more exclusive. But I've spent years working in what are called food apartheid communities. I actually grew up in one of those communities. I grew up in a housing project with a single mom. And, you know, she worked really hard to make good nutrition available to me and my little brother. But it meant her coming home from work. Sometimes she worked two jobs, you know, getting food going. And sometimes she did have to resort to takeout or a TV dinner because there's only so much time in a day. So working with my clients, my patients, working with online resources that I share with people to understand how to make it simpler and affordable. But for my patients who live in food apartheid settings, used to be called food deserts, but food apartheid is really a more appropriate term because these are not unintentional, you know, just happens to be the only place to get your food is is the local gas station convenience store. It does take really making intentional choices to get the best of what's available, which may mean buying whole milk instead of soda or buying the juice instead of the sugary drink and learning how to shop. And it also means learning to help people become activists for their food. And I would say the organization for those who are watching and listening who may need more resources or who want to share more resources with communities that are at risk for poor nutrition because of lack of access is Soul Fire Farm. And you can learn all about creating community CSAs, community food collectives that allow you to get this food brought into any community. And I think that's so important. Yeah, I think that's a a really important point because sometimes, you know, I can imagine someone feeling shame or or guilt that their diet's not, you know, this wonderful Mediterranean diet, but just understanding that the environment in many cases is stacked against people. And it's not about saying personal responsibility is not important, but just helping people see that it's not their fault. They're actually in an environment where it's very easy to quote unquote fail. And it's good to know that there are resources like that that can help people. Well, and it's so important because some of these same nutritional issues are exactly why, for example, black and indigenous women of color are also at higher risk for hypertension when they get pregnant and preeclampsia and all kinds of risk factors. And so I'm so grateful that you brought this point up because it can eating well can be very exclusive and it doesn't have to be. One of my patients years ago was a brilliant woman. She's a PhD Latina woman who worked at Harvard and taught nutrition and she did a research program where she went into a housing community, low-income housing community, and had a test group of people bring her their itemized shopping receipt. And then she gave people a shopping stipend as part of the experiment and taught them how to go back and spend the same amount of money, but get healthier choices. But it can be hard. I mean, the community that I worked in outside of Boston, for example, sometimes I was just fighting to get an extra $25 food voucher for a family of, you know, a single mom and two children just to make ends meet for a week. So it's it's tough. But 
you know, everyone can cut out the ultra processed foods. That is one thing I can say, you know, you can lean into a fortified whole grain bread. Is it the same as your like beautiful organic ancient grain sourdough? No, but it's still better than depleted white bread or sugary pastries and things. So speaking of bread, where do you sit on this whole gluten-free thing when it, when it comes to fertility? It's a great question. So, you know, as I said, I've been around the block on wellness for a long time and I've seen a lot of fads come and go. And so when everyone started going gluten-free about eight, 10 years ago, I was like, hmm, this is interesting. I'm going to sit back and see what happens and I'm going to do my research. And I was actually surprised at quite how much scientific research there is showing that specifically for celiac disease, that gluten can be a huge inflammatory trigger that affects fertility and also quite a few gynecologic problems, including endometriosis, for example, which can impact fertility. So the question is, you know, only about 2% of people actually have celiac disease. What about people with non-celiac gluten intolerance? My experience is that even for those individuals, even though it's not an autoimmune condition, it can still cause inflammation. So I do remove gluten kind of wholesale across the board in my practice for my patients that I'm working with for fertility. And I usually say, if you have celiac, then you have to be like a thousand percent gluten-free. If you don't have celiac and you're not really obviously sensitive to it, then keep it out generally. Like don't have it except once in a blue moon. If you're sensitive to it, keep it out as if you had celiac. So you know, it's really kind of at that person's discretion on paying attention to, do I notice I have a little bit of swelling or inflammation or aches and pains or symptoms when I eat gluten? But pretty much I do recommend a gluten-free diet for six to 12 months until somebody does get pregnant or maybe even if they do get pregnant to stay generally gluten-free. It really can make a huge difference. I'm assuming that what you recommend then is of course, not to go and buy the gluten-free ultra-processed style foods, but to lean more into the gluten-free whole grains. Yeah. So millet, buckwheat, those aren't even grains. They're technically seeds, pink rice, black rice. Those are all seeds, quinoa. And then you can have rice. You don't want to eat rice too often. At least in the US, we have a problem with rice and arsenic, unfortunately. So having brown rice in your diet, you know, once or twice a week at the most is totally fine. And then oats, oatmeal is great too. You know, it's interesting. Some recent studies have shown that people who even have celiac can tolerate some of the ancient grain sourdough breads. But just for safety's sake, I say keep those out. You know, So basically rye, wheat, just keep those out while you're... Rye, wheat, barley, while you're trying to um, get pregnant. And you can eat other wonderful starches too. So sweet potatoes, any kind of baked or roasted potatoes, those will give you a great resistant starch. Winter squashes, those are all things that we don't tend to think of, but also provide some really nice energy and carbohydrates. And this diet that you're talking about, of course, is jam-packed with fiber, which I've spoken about at length on this show and, of course, is incredibly important for nurturing the microbiome and, and promoting a diverse microbiome, which is crucial for health. On this topic of the microbiome, what about the inclusion of fermented foods and probiotics? Yes, yes, and yes, definitely. So fiber is so important for women's hormonal health. 
And also we know that a healthy gut microbiome increases the likelihood of a healthy vaginal and urinary microbiome. And those are both important for fertility, conception, and pregnancy. So we know that a healthy vaginal microbiome, for example, increases the likelihood of that healthy movement of sperm into the cervix, reduces inflammation at the cervix and in the uterine lining. So it makes fertility enhanced and also reduces the likelihood of implantation problems and miscarriage. We also know that women who have recurrent urinary tract and vaginal tract infections, so vaginal infections, have more difficulty with conception and are more likely to experience miscarriages. So Across the board, super important to get fiber in the diet. And everything we've talked about, the legumes, the seeds, the grains, and that eight to 10 servings of vegetables a day really does it. I'm a huge fan of fermented foods. I eat them all like pretty much every day. Sauerkraut, kimchi, and miso are a big part of my diet. And if you do eat dairy, again, that organic dairy, if you don't, you can get organic coconut yogurt, cashew yogurt. Those are all lovely ways to add ferments to your diet. And when it comes to legumes, one that comes up that I think is slightly controversial, there's a lot of different opinions out there about it, is soy and uh, phytoestrogens. Can you tell me, based on your research and what you advocate for in your clinic, where do you sort of land on this whole topic of soy? Yeah, so soy got really vilified by the Western price movement and just soy just became sort of the devil of foods. And I would agree that highly processed soy foods, textured vegetable protein, any of the soy isolates and extracts and non-organic soy, which is usually genetically modified food, are not a healthful part of the diet. I also don't think that eating tofu or drinking lots of soy milk every day is a great idea any more than we would drink chickpea milk or or lentil milk every day or eat those every day. But when you think about soy as just one of the legumes and you think about it as a traditional food, it is actually a traditional food going back thousands of years in Asian culture, particularly China and Japan, Korea, et cetera. And often it's eaten fermented, either in the form of miso or tempeh, or it's eaten in the form of small amounts of tofu as part of the diet. For vegans and vegetarians, it is an incredibly dense, protein-packed, very easy way to bolster up that protein in your diet. So eating it a few times a week totally fine. You know, a quarter of a brick of tofu is a serving. If you like soy milk, just make sure you're making it yourself or buying it freshly made, not with the carrageenan and the sweetener and all that added to it. And then of course, how you digest it is really important. If you don't digest it well, some people find soy much more difficult to digest than some of the other legumes, but it can be an absolutely healthful part of a diet in rotation with lots of other legumes. And so I guess specifically from a hormone perspective, is there anything to worry about with regards to soy impacting a female's hormones? No. I mean, unless again, you're getting soy supplements like the Daidzine and Genistine as extracts and you're taking soy as a supplement, I would not do that at all. But if you're just having it circulating through your diet, it's got phytoestrogens just like chickpeas, just like lentils, just like other legumes. And they can actually be protective against 
the much more potent endocrine disruptors that we're picking up from our environment. So they actually preferentially disrupt toward a healthier estrogen balance. And people who eat phytoestrogens in their diet, particularly if they have a healthy microbiome, have an overall healthier estrogen blood level of the good kinds of estrogen. So I think they're you know, an important part of a healthful diet. The only people I would really encourage to be careful with them are people who have a history of estrogen receptor positive cancer. And I wouldn't avoid them in the diet, but I wouldn't make them the mainstay of the diet. How about coffee and tea and alcohol? So there's really very little evidence that drinking coffee or caffeinated tea impact fertility negatively, you want to stay within 150 milligrams of caffeine. So that's about, you know, half a cup of coffee or one cup of green tea while you're pregnant for optimal health to prevent miscarriage. And that even that it may be squishy science, it may be fine to have a little bit more than that. But I usually say if that's what's optimal when you're pregnant, do it going into it for fertility. Alcohol is really a no-go during pregnancy. Again, the data on alcohol during conception doesn't really show a hugely negative impact. So let me backtrack and say the caveat to that is that there is no healthy amount of alcohol. I'm not a teetotaler. I'm not somebody against having a glass of wine or a drink now and then, but there literally is no healthful amount of alcohol for women. And in fact, the opposite seems to be true. It disrupts our circadian rhythm, which disrupts our hormone balance. It is loaded with sugar. So that's not necessarily great for us either. It is the one food, if you will, that actually has been associated with estrogen cancers in women. So it does disrupt our estrogen levels. So I would say you want to have a drink now and then, you know, once a week, once every other week, you know, keep it to something really clean, not a cocktail, you know, have an ounce of vodka, have an ounce of tequila, have a glass of good quality wine, but not as a regular daily part of the diet. And what about tea, green tea or black tea, for example? Yeah, same as with caffeine, you know, a cup a day, totally fine. Yeah. And, you know, I'm really a firm believer that food is about pleasure and that restricting and being miserable isn't helpful for us either. So have it, enjoy it, keep it to moderation. And, you know, from a medical scientific perspective, there's no reason it should interfere with your fertility. If you personally don't tolerate it well, that's different. Like I know that if I have a glass of wine, I'm just miserable to be around. I'm just emotional. I don't feel great the next day. So it's just not something that I enjoy doing. If you feel that way, don't enjoy, don't have that. If coffee keeps you up at night, if coffee makes you irritated and jangled, don't have it. So just pay attention to your body. And then again, keep it to the cup a day through fertility. I prefer people to not have caffeine during pregnancy, but again, a cup a day should be fine. Talk to me about supplementation and the important things to consider when supplementing, I guess, in the the period where you're trying to fall pregnant and then whether anything changes once you are pregnant. And perhaps this is where we make any distinctions clear for for someone who's not consuming fish and, and eggs and therefore certain things that they may need to focus on a little more. Sure. So... Ideally, we get all of our nourishment from our diet and that's how it 
could and should be. But the reality is we live in a time where some of our food is nutrient depleted, even the best of it. We may skip meals because of busy lifestyles. And as I said earlier, and when I was talking about the ultra processed foods actually depleting our nutrients, so do environmental pollutants that we're exposed to, so does stress. So I think of a prenatal vitamin during that preconception time as that buffer against sort of the factors of modern living and as a way to bump up and optimize those nutrients that so many women that I talked about, you know, the 13, 14 nutrients that women are often going into pregnancy low in anyway. So the easiest and best way to do that is to get a really great prenatal vitamin. I mean, look, whatever you can afford, any prenatal vitamin is probably better than no prenatal vitamin, but taking a prenatal vitamin is a great little extra insurance policy. To that, I would also say take additional vitamin D and take an additional omega-3 fatty acid supplement. Back to those who don't eat eggs and fish, the eggs are providing a really quick source of protein, but you can get that other ways on a vegan or vegetarian diet. What's harder to get is the choline because choline is mostly found in beef, pork, eggs. So you want to just make sure that you get a prenatal vitamin that has choline in it. And similarly, if you don't eat any fish in your diet, take an essential fatty acid. I like a good rounded out DHA EPA fish oil. And if you're comfortable as a vegan taking fish oil, great. If you're not comfortable with that, you can get an algae-based product that's just as absorbable and will give you everything you need. So you can choose which works best for you. On my website, at avivaram.com, I did a full review of the prenatal vitamins that are largely available in the United States that have the optimal nutrient ranges in them. So wherever you are, you can be Canada, the UK, Australia, anywhere else, go ahead. You can go to my website at avivaram.com right on my homepage you can't miss it. There's a picture of pregnant women and there's a downloadable, which is a guide to prenatal vitamins. It's totally free. And a review of those vitamins. Use that review to compare it to the prenatal vitamin that you have access to and just see, does it give you the 220 to 290 of iodine that you need every day? Does it meet the choline standard, et cetera, et cetera, as a great way to know that you're just, you're optimizing. And then, you know, different prenatal vitamins preconceptually are going to work for different people when they go into pregnancy. So you might take a vitamin right now and you're like, oh, I can take six tablets a day, no problem. You don't need a different prenatal vitamin when you get pregnant or postpartum. You can take this, I call it a three natal. You can take it all through. The nutrient needs are pretty similar, similar enough that you don't have to worry about it. But once you're pregnant, especially in first trimester, if you're nauseated, those prenatal vitamins are often just the worst trigger for prenatal nausea. So you might need to switch to a one-a-day tablet or a two-a-day tablet to just keep it down. So, you know, that might be something you want to think about just getting started on it. If you find one that you like, maybe find one that is fewer capsules. And then again, take a separate fish oil and a separate vitamin D. And then you can find a fish oil. There are fish oil products that are optimized for pregnant women for prenatal, same one for preconception. And then vitamin D, it's about 2,000 units a day that you want to add on. And then 
if you want to, starting and you can do it anytime during pregnancy, but definitely second, third trimester, you can add in a probiotic. There's some evidence that women who take a probiotic, especially in the third trimester, may be having some protective effects for their babies against allergies, asthma, and eczema, particularly if the baby is born by C-section that may have some added advantages. Truly, I recommend all women who are of reproductive age who are having sex just to take a prenatal vitamin. Because hearkening back to what I said earlier, 50% of people get pregnant unintended anyway. And you may be thinking, oh, I'm going to try to get pregnant you know, in six months. So why wait till then? First of all, you'll be optimizing so that you're less likely to have a fertility challenge. And two, you'll be optimizing your whole prenatal experience. So just everyone listening, if you're old enough to have sex, and you're having sex and you're old enough to get pregnant, just take a prenatal vitamin and a vitamin D and a fish oil. That was good as well about the choline. I have noticed quite a few prenatal supplements in Australia anyway, often do not include choline. So that's a good one to to look out for. When it comes to the DHA EPA, whether someone buys fish oil or algae oil, is there a certain amount of sort of total DHA EPA that someone should be looking for? I, I know that there is quite a bit of a variability out there. Yeah, for fertility, I usually go up to about two grams of a combined EPA DHA a day. And then prenatally, one gram a day is fine, especially if you're going to add, you know, bump it out with some fish. You mentioned before skipping meals. Fasting has become enormously popular. There are a lot of people skipping meals. And I wonder, of course, when we're talking about anything in nutrition and health, we have to consider what population, what cohort, what type of person, where are they at in their life stage? What do you think about skipping meals and preparing for pregnancy or for a woman who is pregnant? Yeah, so I'm a big fan of overnight fasting, meaning basically don't eat from about three hours before you go to bed till the next morning, about 12, 14 hours later, because that does give our body an optimal chance to go into that parasympathetic rest, digest mode that back to that hormone intelligence, that biological blueprint, we have followed largely from time immemorial. That said, I've spent time in Italy and in Spain and people eat at 10 o'clock at night and they're still getting pregnant and having babies. So to some extent, you know, pay attention to what works for you. But if you're having trouble getting pregnant or if you have hormonal challenges, then doing that overnight fast is a really nice way to reset insulin. It's really important for people with PCOS and to reset circadian rhythm, which is really important for hormones and fertility. More than that, more fasting than that really has not been shown for women of reproductive age, including women with PCOS, to be beneficial beyond about six weeks of doing it. After about six weeks in women, there actually seem to be some rebound effects. You know, it's really interesting because a lot of these movements, the paleo movement, the ketogenic movement, the intermittent fasting movement have really been kind of kicked off and heavily promoted by men and then adopted by women, yet they're not necessarily optimal for our physiology. And when we're skipping meals, especially if we're getting hungry or hangry, 
we're actually driving up our cortisol, we're driving up our inflammation, we're driving up a lot of processes that can actually be counterproductive to getting pregnant. So it's always important to listen to your body and do what works best for you. But I think it's more rhythmic for fertility and optimal hormones to have some breakfast, have some lunch, have some dinner, try to have about three, four hours between eating, not having snacks to allow that body time to rest and digest again in between, making sure each meal has a really nice complement of a good quality protein source, something that's really deeply nutritious, a good quality energy source, whether that is some small amount of a carb or carb grain like we talked about, or some starchy vegetable, a healthy starchy vegetable like winter squash or something like that, and a nice couple of servings of vegetables and or fruit if that's appropriate for that meal. And just kind of follow that throughout the day. Once you get pregnant and once you're breastfeeding, you may need to have snacks and you may need to eat later at night because your body is, as my midwife mentor always said, you're just under heavy construction all the time. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. Often when talking about nutrition, and fertility or pregnancy, the topic of body weight comes up and what's sort of optimal for health during these periods. When it comes to pregnancy, is being underweight or overweight likely to affect the course of pregnancy and any of the outcomes? So being underweight, absolutely. When we are underweight, our bodies go into conservation mode. So your brain gets the message that there's not enough calories, not enough nutrition, not enough energy to support that person, let alone supporting another person in their belly. And so your body dials down ovulation. So we see women experience something called anovulatory infertility. We see this in athletes a lot of times. We see it in ballet dancers. We see it in gymnasts where there's that really low body mass, low body fat. Overweight is a much more interesting phenomenon. You know, there's been so much stigma and shaming around women and weight. Interestingly, unless a woman is medically obese, and I really don't love that term obese because it sounds so shaming. So what I'm talking about is a body mass index that's really into the 30s or a high waist circumference, we don't necessarily see significant fertility challenges. When we see women who are very, very overweight, um, we may see some more pregnancy challenges. We may see some more miscarriages. We may see more gestational diabetes. But if you're going to err on the side of weight, having really a healthy body weight, not being underweight is really important. Not being extremely overweight is really important. I think there's so much confusing scientific, medical, and wellness literature that gets women to think they need to lose a lot of weight to get pregnant, and that's not necessarily true. On the topic of miscarriages, 
which is, to my knowledge, far more common than many realize, but something that I guess not as many people talk about. Of course, it's, it's very distressing for everyone involved. If someone has a miscarriage, what are the chances that they can then go on to have a healthy pregnancy in the future? Almost every woman who has one miscarriage goes on to have a healthy pregnancy. We're talking like like less than 1% of women who have a first miscarriage having subsequent problems. As you have more miscarriages, the chance of more miscarriages goes up. But it also doesn't mean that you can't have an entirely healthy pregnancy. And one of the big questions that I get is after I've had a miscarriage, which I mean, I hope nobody listening has to go through. It's, you know, it can be very... Um, this is so emotionally and spiritually and physically challenging. And it is so under discussed. I mean, to me, I make such an effort to try to talk about it. Even in my earliest book, the natural pregnancy book, I had a chapter on miscarriage. And of all the things that I heard over the years from that book, that was one of the things that women just said, thank you, because there's so little out there. But one of the big questions is, when can I get pregnant again? And it used to be I mean, even uh, before the last decade, we'd tell women, oh, wait three months, it's medically better. But actually, we now know that that time, even in that month after miscarriage, is one of the highest times of likelihood to get pregnant again and stay pregnant. So it's really interesting. So someone might not be emotionally or spiritually or physically ready, but if they are, they can try again and there's a great chance of success for a healthy pregnancy at that time. So it's really interesting. So... In terms of you know navigating this whole area of conceiving and, and fertility and sort of thinking about the steps that someone would take, if someone is having difficulty conceiving, what is the, the first step that they should take? Is it to go and, and see a fertility specialist? Do they get blood work done? Or do they just start by reviewing their lifestyle on their own at home with their partner? What do you recommend? Well, I think a workup is a really good idea, but you don't have to go to a fertility specialist for that. You can go to your primary care doctor if they're knowledgeable about fertility. You can go to a women's health nurse practitioner, nurse midwife, depends on what you call them in your own country. Um, that's what we we have here. You can go to a naturopath who's, you just want them to be knowledgeable about fertility as opposed to a reproductive health specialist who's more likely than not going to just put you down a fertility treatment road. It's important to get a basic nutritional panel getting checked for vitamin D level, a 25-hydroxy vitamin D, getting checked for iron, so hemoglobin, hematocrit, and ferritin. And I usually recommend getting a B12 also. Those three together, if those are all normal, there's a good chance that a lot of the other nutrients are normal too. If those are not normal, there's a good chance a lot of the other nutrients aren't as well. And yes, one might say, well, then why can't I just take a prenatal? But if they're significantly low, especially that vitamin D and the iron, then you really want to make an effort to bring those up to normal and having that measurement can help you. The other really important lab set to get is a thyroid panel because undetected thyroid problems can be an issue with fertility. If you've had multiple miscarriages or even if you've had one miscarriage and you just want to be really sure or if you've been trying to get pregnant for a while, another test that I recommend getting is called MTHFR. And you can get all of this done. These aren't fancy functional medicine labs. These are conventional labs that any lab can order, any 
licensed provider can order. Because if you have MTHFR, then you know that you definitely need to make sure that you're getting methylfolate, not just folic acid in your prenatal vitamin. And that's really important. Again, everyone can just take a prenatal with methylfolate. That's fine. But knowing you have that may give you an explanation for why you're not getting pregnant. And one more sort of subtle lab that you can get, but may have quite a lot of value is something called homocysteine. Homocysteine goes up, particularly in people who have that MTHFR gene change. And higher homocysteine levels may be a marker of a fertility challenge or some prenatal problems as well, higher risk of miscarriage, prenatal blood pressure problems, et cetera. So you can use that homocysteine level to watch the folate levels improve because the homocysteine will go down as you're supplementing. So that is sort of the MTHFR and the homocysteine are a little bit of an add-on, but I would absolutely start with those other labs that I mentioned, the thyroid, vitamin D, iron, and B12. And at the start of this conversation, you alluded to the fact that there is a booming sort of alternative treatment industry to help people fall pregnant. I'm wondering what you think about navigating you know, IVF or ovarian stimulation. You know, are these certain things that you recommend people do explore at some point along the journey of trying to fall pregnant and, and sort of when would you recommend them, if you do at all, to sort of go and, and explore those? So the first thing is, let's say somebody's just been trying for a little while and they haven't fallen into the diagnostic category technically of infertility. So they're under 35, they haven't been trying for a year. All the things that we've talked about, you can just do those and optimize before going in for a medical evaluation. Ditto for anyone over 35 who's been trying for up to six months. You can just do all these things and get those basic labs that I talked about. Once you hit that point of... Either I'm concerned and I just want to get a further workup or I've hit that mark and I think I should get a further workup. That's a time when, again, the practitioners I mentioned can help with this or you can see an OB-GYN who specializes in fertility or see somebody who does reproductive medicine and then get a further workup. And there are additional more complex levels of labs, hormone testing, even some pelvic exam, something called the hysterosalpingogram, which is when there is a dye that is injected, it's a, a blue dye that's injected into the uterus, up into the fallopian tubes to make sure that they're patent or open so that the sperm can get up there, the egg can get down, everything's working. Interestingly, just getting a hysterosalpingogram for whatever reason, that's unclear. We don't know if the dye is anti-inflammatory, something happens, actually increases your chance of getting pregnant or falling pregnant, as I love you. I love how you say that. <laughs> I think always think of falling pregnant, like there's a baby on the sidewalk and you fall on it and it, then it's in your belly. I love that. <laughs> um, so those are sort of the next level workup. And then if all of that comes back normal, then you can just keep trying for longer. Because again, most people will get pregnant in that first two years. But if you're at a point where like, you know what, been down this road, ready to try something else, then you can start with ovarian stimulation. Well, you can do a number of things. You can do egg harvest from a natural cycle where there's no ovarian stimulation. You can do ovarian stimulation. You can do uh, that just to try to stimulate ovulation and 
getting pregnant naturally. You can do IVF. You can do embryo transfer. There's a whole host of, you know, uh, a whole menu of options you can pick from based on where you're at and what you need and what the actual, if there's a medical problem. Of course, we want to look at the male factors going on here as well. And, you know, again, everything I've said to do that we've talked about, Simon, that I've shared is still so important to optimize fertility. If someone is having a fertility challenge, there are some additional supplements to add in that we haven't talked about. So our ovaries require a huge amount of energy to ovulate. It just consumes a lot of cellular energy. And the fire or the force at a cellular level behind that energy is something called our mitochondria. For those of you who had high school or college biology, you might remember the mitochondria. They're the powerhouses of the cell. And what they're literally doing is acting like spark plugs, producing something called ATP that fires cellular action. And our ovaries actually have more mitochondria than any other part of the body. It's really, other than the heart, the muscle, heart muscle has a huge amount. So we can actually support and nourish and feed that mitochondria with coenzyme Q10, riboflavin, and D-ribose. And also interestingly, we think of melatonin for sleep, but melatonin also helps our ovaries. So in on my website, in the Optimal Fertility Diet, in my book that you talked about at the beginning, Hormone Intelligence in the Fertility Protocol, I provide all the doses for those additional nutrients. Interestingly, the way we learned the most research data about those nutrients was those nutrients being used in conjunction with assisted fertility. We find that women have better ovulation and actually have healthier embryos when they do conceive when they're using those nutrients. So I usually recommend anyone who already thinks they might be struggling with subfertility, go ahead and add those in at the get-go. Anyone who's over 35 and trying to get pregnant for the first time or, or trying to have a subsequent pregnancy, go ahead and add them in because our mitochondria go down with age. They're safe to take in the doses that I talk about in various places, but can really give a little extra zhuzh to your ovaries for that fertility health. And totally can be used in conjunction with fertility medications and fertility treatments. Just let your fertility provider know that you're taking them. Great. I think it might be nice as well for us to quickly discuss some other aspects of lifestyle that you feel are important for women to consider and their partners when it comes to nourishing their body and mind and, and preparing for pregnancy at a high level. What are uh, some of your other recommendations from a lifestyle perspective? So I love creating a fertility journal, uh, an actual journal where pre-mama starts actually writing to pre-baby. You know, just really getting in that mindset of being generative from a creative, imaginal, manifesting, if you will, level. It's a really beautiful way to also share your thoughts, you know, even before you got pregnant, what's in your heart. We also know that journaling in and of itself can reduce stress, improve cortisol levels, reduce trauma. So it's a beautiful way to practice stress reduction, meditation, time in nature, anything that helps you feel really 
at peace with the process because there are going to be ups and downs if you're on a fertility journey. And then if you add fertility medications in there, that adds a whole piece of, you know, the emotional ups and downs because you're really on jacked levels of hormones at that point. For couples who are doing this together, creating really lovely, sensual, tantric, if you will, rituals around sex and putting the relationship first, making this sex passionate to the extent that you can, making it a ritual so that it doesn't just become mechanical and become stressful, that you're just having sex for the sake of pregnancy and then sex becomes fraught and tense. Exercise, movement, and anything you can do together as a couple is great, but any just, just moving your body, whether that's dancing, yoga, Pilates, hiking, swimming, whatever you love. But we know that being sedentary is, of course, there's that word again. Sorry to hound on that word, but pro-inflammatory where movement is really healthful. And if you are in a fertility challenge, finding other people that you can talk with. We can start to live in shame and self-blame and kind of go in this cloak and shadow of aloneness. Whereas talking with other people, um, sharing the journey with other people can actually really really help. So those are just a few of the, you know, top level. Circadian rhythm is also important. So we didn't really talk about sleep, but nourishing healthy sleep, getting to bed at a reasonable hour and really trying to get seven to eight hours of sleep a night is incredibly important for our hormones. And, you know, interestingly, when it comes to sex and when it comes to sleep, the biggest factor, at least from studies from the American Psychological Association that are getting in people's way of both of those are digital devices. So getting off of our cell phones and our computers and all of that before bed, making time for intimacy and making time for sleep can really make a difference. Mm-hmm. That's an important one. All right, well, perhaps to, to round this one out, maybe a, a sort of parting message, a final message. What would you say to a woman or a couple who who is desperately trying to fall pregnant? Seemingly they're doing all of the right things. Many of the things that you've discussed today are perhaps a little frustrated by seeing people around them fall pregnant with relative ease sometimes and are starting to doubt themselves and have lost that hope and that confidence. Yes. So I have four children and I have two grandchildren. And if there's anything I have learned, and my oldest is 36, so I've been doing this for a while as a mom and grandma. If there's anything I have learned is that our children take us on a journey that is beyond our control. And it starts before we ever get pregnant. And however you become a parent, whether that is easeful fertility, a fertility challenge, or, and I know that nobody listening who's on a fertility journey wants to hear this, but even if it is, let's say the worst thing to think of right now would be adopting. I don't think any adopted people or adoptees or adoptive parents think that that's the worst thing that would have happened. So I'm saying that because if you're on a fertility journey, you might think that that's failure. But as much as you can surrender to the unexpected beauty of the journey, we have no control of who our children are, whether we conceive them through our own bodies or they come into our lives other ways. So I would say, be open to the journey, welcome the curiosity of it and love yourself because you don't know where it's going to take you. And hopefully it'll take you 
everywhere you want it to be, but I don't know anyone who's a parent, however they became a parent, who doesn't love their children and feel like their children are their own. So Incredible. Aviva, thank you so much. I think you're just absolutely wonderful. Honestly, I could talk to you all day. I love the way that you communicate your message and and intertwine the science and make it so accessible for everyone. And I can really feel that it comes from a real place of of love and care. Please do come back and, and join me again. If the listeners would like to connect with you, learn more from you, reach out and uh, talk to you, where is the best place for them to find you? Simon, thank you. I really love your perspective and your energy and I look forward to many more conversations with you. And thank you everyone for joining us and listening. The best places to reach me are at Aviva rom.com. And there are a lot of fertility resources there. You can find out more about my book that Simon talked about. You can get that prenatal download that I talked about. And you can head over to the Mama Pathway, which is going to be launching very shortly. It is a full membership with preconception, prenatal, postpartum, pregnancy, all kinds of resources and um, really beautiful. And then head over to Instagram. uh, If you are a social media person, just at doctor dot, so dr dot Aviva Ram. And I'm there hanging out. It's really me checking in with the comments and posting there. Lots of fertility and, and mama resources. Beautiful. Thank you, Aviva. Thank you, Simon. There we go. I hope you found that interesting, instructive, illuminating, and clarifying. Of course, if you did, please share with your friends and family on the socials. The more people that we can help together, the better. And while you're there, make sure that we're connected. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at plant underscore proof. Quick one before I let you go. I am often asked what supplements I take probably one of the most common questions that I get actually. So I finally got around and created an in-depth supplement guide, totally free, that you can download along with a bunch of other free guides at plantproof.com. Inside, it contains information about daily supplements for everyday wellness, along with performance supplements. The daily supplement that I personally take is a multi-nutrient called Essential 8 by NutraKind. This is a product I formulated for NutraKind alongside their team that specifically contains the eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall a little short in. Omega-3s from algae, B12, vitamin D3 from mushroom, iodine from seaweed, calcium, zinc, selenium, and iron the right forms in the right doses to complement your plant-rich diet. To find out more or subscribe to a monthly delivery, head to NutraKind.com. That's N-U-T-R-I-K-Y-N-D.com. And use the code PLANTPROOF for 15% off your purchase. So in summary, grab a copy of the supplement guide at PLANTPROOF.com. And if you are in the market for a daily multi-nutrient to cover your bases, head to NutraKind.com and use the code PLANTPROOF for 15% off. On that lovely note, it's time to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and for your ongoing interest in evidence-based nutrition. 
I appreciate you and I look forward to repeating it all again in a few days' time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.